Hello and welcome to another episode of the Citizens Take Action podcast. I'm your host, David Edward Burke. We are back after something of a hiatus. As I'm sure I don't have to tell you, 2020 was a, an unorthodox year, and it meant that we did not put out podcasts with the frequency that you may have grown accustomed to. But like many other things, we think 2021 will be much better in that regard. Um, joining me today is John Landis, Citizens Take Action board member and political landscape assessor extraordinaire. John, how's 2021 treating you so far? I mean, it's it's all uphill from here, right? <laughs> I mean, the worst thing about 2020 was definitely the lack of Citizens Take Action podcasts, I think, for everyone. So hopefully we're at least fixing the biggest problems first. So in this episode, we're going to get into why there is new hope for political reform in 2021 and beyond, um, specifically why... We think we can really gain some momentum and traction for a campaign finance reform amendment like the Restore Democracy Amendment. Um, But we're also going to go over, you know, kind of why the last few years weren't the friendliest or the best environment for political reform, why we think things are going to be better and what you can do to get involved and help. But first, I want to give you a little Citizens Take Action history Maybe some of you are joining us for the first time. Don't worry. I won't drone on about it for too long. But what's interesting is that our organization was founded in 2016, but it was before the 2016 election. A lot of organizations sprang up in response to the 2016 election, and a lot of activists kind of found their footing or people decided to become politically active for the first time after 2016. But we... We were founded before that election, and we already believed that political reform was one of the most critical issues facing the country, uh, that our political institutions were not serving us the way that they were intended, and specifically that big money in politics was one of the most fundamental problems we had to address. So we were excited when we started the organization. We were eager to, to work toward these reforms and make change. But then the 2016 election happened. And I think it threw so many Americans for a loop. It was an unexpected outcome and things became a lot more challenging or different or unprecedented in the ensuing years. And it's not to say that we weren't able to move forward. We had some successes on local campaign finance reform in Los Angeles, um, building support in Congress for a campaign finance reform amendment, doing some voter registration among high school students, things of that nature. But you know, the 2016 election really changed changed the stakes and changed the game. And, uh, you know, shortly before that election, one thing that was interesting was that both candidates in the presidential election, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, talked a good game about political reform. Hillary spoke highly of a campaign finance reform amendment. And if you remember, Trump promised to drain the swamp and campaign as an outsider who wouldn't be beholden to powerful interests. So, John, my first question to you is, how did Trump deliver on his promise to drain the swamp in his four years? Without being overly partisan, I will say that there's not much evidence to support that political reform in any meaningful or constructive sense was a a priority of his agenda. There was a lot of certainly talk about draining the swamp, but not a lot, if any, real movement toward 
towards substantive change or anything that I would classify fixing systemic problems with with campaign finance laws or anything else that existed prior to the 2016 election and that we are still dealing with to this day. Yeah, I think a lot of people didn't know what to expect after Trump was elected, but he sort of seemed to surround himself with the same coterie of lobbyists, titans of industry, and family members that many powerful people do. And there wasn't a whole lot of meaningful movement on election reform, campaign finance reform, or sincere efforts um, to diminish the influence of big money in politics. So in that sense, it was, I think, disappointing for the prospects for political reform. But one other thing I thought was particularly damaging to the ability of members of Congress or state legislatures or even rank and file activists you know, to move forward change in terms of <clears throat> political reform was that Trump's presidency was just such a constant, unprecedented distraction. There were so many crises and tweets to dominate the news coverage. And it seemed like Democrats were wholly committed to the resistance and Republicans were wholly committed to supporting Trump. And there wasn't a whole lot of let's work together and solve problems. It was mostly one team against the other team. A hundred percent. And also certainly I think the media certainly fortunately, I think this continuing even with Trump gone, even, you know, outside of the fact that we're dealing with a global pandemic, economic problems, um, social unrest, um, and many, you know, things that are legitimate news stories, even prior to 2020, the media seemed far more interested in covering nonstop Trump's tweets and every overblown thing that occurred than actually talking about these systemic issues. So I think that distraction, I think there's blame all the way to go around from the um, maybe sources of such distraction to those who chose to focus on those distractions rather than, than on more meaningful things. Yeah, I think it's hard to overstate how different things were in you know Congress, for example, in terms of how difficult it was for members of Congress just to like maintain their attention on typical day-to-day issues or the kind of legislation that might generally have a chance of success when you know we had impeachment proceedings. Now we have a second impeachment going on. Every time I was in DC, it seemed like there was a crisis going on in the background. And that, as much as anything, I think prevented major legislation from getting through and prevented progress on political reform that many Americans had hoped to see. But one thing that's, I think, maybe a silver lining, if you want to call it that, is that there seems to be a feeling among you know, many Americans that political reform is now more essential than ever, and that getting big money out of politics feels more essential than ever, because in the last four years, not only did those problems not get solved or improve, but in many ways, they were more vis- clearly visible than they had ever been before. Well, I think just the the nature of the hyper-partisanship and frankly, just increased focus on politics. I mean, there, it's, I think like a lot of things with what occurred under what in Trump, there's, you know, it was a double-edged sword on, you know, you could look at the fact that people are much more politically aware and engaged. There's obviously a positive to that. If you look at the rate of, you know, how, how many people voted, even in 2018, pre-pandemic and a quote unquote normal election turnout was 
way up from a from a typical um, off year election where there was no presidential race. So it's good for people to be civically engaged. It's maybe less good for the degree of hyper partisanship and tension that we're seeing un- under Trump and successively people being so emotionally invested in a way that maybe people weren't before, you know, people are donating at much higher rates. Um, you know, you're seeing also just not just on the presidential level, like crazy amounts of spending record spending on Senate races, congressional races, things that frankly used to be local races, you know, the amount of, the amount of time, you know, coverage of two Georgia Senate races, you know, 30 years ago, how much attention is a Georgia Senate race gain outside of Georgia? Not that much. Now it, these are all national races and it's good for people to be civically engaged and aware, but, it, you know, maybe it's a little, it's gotten a little out of control. And I think with regards to talking about campaign finance specifically, it's, there's always been more bipartisan support for political reform and campaign finance than maybe the actions of some Republican politicians would have nece- on these issues would have led you to believe. But I think the fact that, you know, there's certainly a lot of concern, even if sometimes misguidedly focused on unfounded and, you know, ludicrous um, conspiracy theories, but nonetheless that there's real awareness and concern that there are flaws in our political system and that there there is a need for reforms. And if that's channeled in a constructive way, that could lead to constructive bipartisan efforts towards reform. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the the increase in activism and how I think that that helps the political reform movement in general, right? I think a lot of people, and this is the trajectory I took, and maybe it's the same for you, you know, I, I was interested in politics from a young age because my dad was a high school government history teacher. It's just, you know, something we talked about more in our household. And then as I got older and I got involved in campaigns, or I even worked in Congress, you know, you slowly start to learn, hey, like, this system doesn't really work the way that I wanted it to, or the way that I thought it did. Like I was working on this campaign and then powerful interests were just able to thwart it with lots of spending, even if they didn't have much public support, or even if public opinion shows that Americans, you know, generally support raising taxes on the wealthiest Americans or common sense gun, gun ownership restrictions, those things don't pass because of big money. And so over time, once you're involved in the political activism, you realize, okay, it's not just these issues that I might care about, like healthcare or education. It's systemic issues that we need to solve so that we can make progress on those issues. Um, so in that sense, I think the increased activism you know, is going to lead a lot of people to support political reform who didn't before. And as you said, there's more reason for it because we've seen the nearly double spending from the 2016 election cycle to the 2020 with like dark money. Um, you know, I think it's over $3 billion spent this cycle. The outside spending in the Georgia Senate race, a lot of which came from out of state. And there's just something that strikes me as, you know, maybe not right about so much money being funneled into these local races from other parts of the country. Yeah. And it's just like, I mean, I think in some cases, it's, some of the predictions about this been wrong. I think there was certainly a initially a concern based on the sort of the sort of partisan politics of the well, let's say the Bush era and sort of the afternoon beginning of Obama that this would primarily favor you know Republicans and conservatives based on corporate interests you know people talking about like groups you know put that were funded by like the Koch brothers 
but what we've seen is that a lot of, you know, I don't think it actually has cut that way. I mean, I think, I think it's been had less influence in terms of benefiting one party or another, but, but there's been a ton of outside spending, say in the South Carolina race by Democrats. So what we've seen is that big money may not benefit one party as much as the other, as much as we've, as we thought it's been, I think it's cut both ways more. And I think as to your above point, like we've just seen a ton of spending going into states that we wouldn't have before, like the amount of money that was spent in an unsuccessful effort by Democrats to defeat Lindsey Graham is just unprecedented. That's just one example. And I think a lot of it is, you know, people see someone in another state they don't like or see an opportunity to flip a seat and they're just willing to pour crazy amounts of money, you know, say from California or New York into South Carolina. And I think in some cases it's backfired, but it's just like, I don't think it's necessarily a healthy thing for the way our system was designed because it, in a way it sort of drowns out the, the voters and donors of the people who actually live in that, in those States and those districts or in those communities. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's so many problems with big money in politics, but when you boil it down to the essence it's really that it allows a handful of wealthy individuals to drown out everybody else because money buys a bigger megaphone. So, you know, the last four years weren't as hospitable to political reform. It's becoming more apparent that we need it in campaign finance reform specifically. But one other point that directly relates to a constitutional amendment to get big money out of politics is how the composition of the Supreme Court has changed in the past four years. Now, as I mentioned, we started Citizens Take Action before the 2016 election. We firmly believed that it made more sense to work to pass a constitutional amendment than it did to wait for the Supreme Court to hopefully overturn decisions like Buckley v. Vallejo and Citizens United that allowed big money into politics. However, you know, a number of prominent, you know, campaign finance or election law scholars didn't agree with that. And they thought the prudent approach was to wait for the Supreme Court to change. They thought President Hillary Clinton would probably appoint a favorable justice or two, and then the court would overturn those decisions. And passing an amendment was just too difficult compared to waiting for the composition of the court to change. But now what's happened is that President Trump was able to appoint three Supreme Court justices, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, none of whom are likely to be favorable to campaign finance reform. So as unlikely as it might have been that the court would solve this problem in 2015 or 2016, it's even less likely now, which has made passing an an amendment that much more essential. John... To me, it doesn't make any sense at all to expect the Supreme Court to fix our campaign finance problems anytime in the next couple decades. No, I mean, and it was always based, I mean, it's impossible to predict, and that's the whole problem. I mean, it's on a few factors. First of all, you're trying to predict the results of presidential elections. I think it's fair to say that based on betting markets and popular perception, most people, in, you know, up to the day of the election in 2016, thought Hillary Clinton would win, and she did not. Um, so there's you're, you're starting with that. You're also relying on predicting when judges are going to either resign or die, frankly, based on the system we have that, that allows justices to serve for life. Like the 
you know, Trump could have happened to get three judges in four years. Obama got two and eight. Who who knows how many President Biden will get? He might get zero. He might get multiple. And it's just, and also you're relying on predicting how judges are going to vote on these issues. I think, in my opinion, it's not necessarily a good thing. Judges have become much more reliably and predictably partisan to the president's that nominated them than then used to be the case, but there's still no guarantees which way a judge is going to ultimately hold on these complicated issues. So you're just creating multiple layers of sort of faith that all those things are going to cut the way you want to get to five judges who are willing to vote the way and rule the way that you hope they would on these issues. And even if you get that for a period of time, Four, eight, 12 years later, that can all change when the court composition of the court changes, or even if the same judges might change their position on certain issues, which has also happened in the past. So it's just, it's just, if you're really interested in actual solid systemic change that's sustainable, the courts are not the solution for that. That's not to say that, that we should not advocate for, for better courts and should not advocate, you know, vote for, for, presidents that we think will pick judges that are going to rule better on these issues and other issues we care about, but it's, it's not ultimately the solution. And the last four years have proven that. I'm glad you brought up the point that, because I think a lot of people forget it, that even if the Supreme Court is temporarily favorable towards campaign finance reform, for example, there's no assurance that in a few years, the composition won't change and they won't reverse course. And that's become an increasingly modern trend. Um, I think historically, the court was a little more deferential to precedent and unlikely to overturn a century of precedent just because the composition changed and there was one or two new judges. But in the Citizens United case, for example, the court essentially answered a question it wasn't even asked and overturned a century of precedent to rule that corporations and unions can spend as much money as they want to influence elections. And to me, it's just foolish at this point to place confidence in the court, like you said, to you know be an instigator of change. Placing our confidence in the court just seems riskier than ever, in my opinion. So the last four years, a wild ride, not the most favorable climate to get anything done, let alone political reform. And I think the problems with systemic issues have become even clearer and more apparent to most Americans. That's the bad news, perhaps. The good news is that there is new hope for reform for a number of reasons. You know, one, we've got a new president, a new Congress. Some incoming members have talked a good game about systemic issues. Even some incoming Republican members of Congress, I've seen quotes from their campaign websites about the need to stand up to special interests, you know, fight back against big money in politics. So there's always you know, new people to recruit who may actually and sign on to a campaign finance reform amendment. But in addition, and we've touched on this a little bit already, people are just more worried about systemic political issues than they have been before. I don't think many Americans have felt that their political system is weaker than it is right now, or at least felt that it has more threats that that we're not sure it can withstand. And I'm not just talking about the last four years. 
John, can you speak to how in just the last six months, it's become clear that we need to work to strengthen our political institutions against the many threats they're facing? I think it's, for one thing, I think even though a lot of the the direct things that say the people who stormed the Capitol um, on January 6th were, that motivated them were based on, you know, lies and just things that were not based in reality. But nonetheless, I think there's an underlying thing that is based on some level of reality behind that, which is that people do see that the system is flawed and that it favors some interests over others and that people with certain types of money and influence and companies with certain types of money and influence have access to the system the ways that others don't. And that is not based on, you know, conspiracy theories. That is true. And that's true for liberals and conservatives. And, you know, that's, that's something that we should all be able to see and work on. So I think there is a chance to channel this concern and energy that we've even seen with some of these, you know, anti-Wall Street, you know, things like the GameStop Reddit thing, you know, there's sort of more, you know, sort of energy towards, even if not necessarily in a particularly like constructive initially approach, there is that energy. So if, if we can get people to advocate to actually change the real problems in our system, I think there's a lot of hope. I think also the divided nature of our government right now provides a real opportunity because I think when you've got one party and this is the problem with a lot of states, you know, both on the you know Democratic and Republican side, when you have one party that has like iron grip control over all the the whole government of a, of a state that that does tend to breed entrenched corruption and less sort of maybe listening to constituents because there's less accountability, at least on the short term. But I think right now where we've got, you know, very close elections at 50-50 Senate, very, very divided House, I think there is potentially a lot of opportunity for both parties to actually f- listen to their constituents and to really work to solve people's problems and to address some of these systemic issues. But there's also a lot of concern, I think, right now that that might get drowned out in such in the hyperpolarization that we're facing and sort of the um, you can I think you could already see it with both parties where they're, you know, sort of redirecting that energy against, you know, the sort of easiest targets, you know, the Democrats will talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and the Republicans will talk about Ilhan Omar and regardless of how you feel about those individual representatives, I think, I think it's ultimately in some level a distraction from and in a way to sort of fundraise and focus, refocus partisan energy away from these maybe more constructive systemic problems that would be more unifying for our country. Time will tell, I guess, you know, how much how much positive comes from Americans being awakened to some of these systemic issues and you know, how much cost we pay for the polarization of those issues and the the rise of, you know, these distractions and lies and partisan attacks, you know, against the most extreme members of the opposing parties. But at the very least, I do think it's never been clearer 
that a lot of the things we took for granted maybe as Americans about about our institutions are just under question now. And we've realized that democracy is not a self-perpetuating machine. It needs constant work. You know, it's like a business where you need to adapt to changing circumstances. And we maybe used to take for granted that there would always be peaceful transfers of power between presidential administrations. We don't take that for granted anymore. We maybe used to take for granted that you know, social media was more benign. And now we have to be concerned with its nefarious influences and how we can best you know, reap the rewards of being able to organize online while preventing dangerous people from, from massing to, to commit violent acts. But overall, I'm glad that more people are seeing, okay, our political system, it needs our attention. It's not enough for us just to vote we have to get involved in fixing some of these fundamental problems to make sure that the candidates we're voting for are qualified and to make sure that once they're in office, they actually do what they're supposed to do and represent us. hundred percent. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. Like hopefully some of these things were anomalies and will not be repeated. I think it did. It did wake people up to the fact that, you know, even if you're, you know, patriotic American who believes in some level in American exceptionalism, it, it wakes you up to realize that that these things that we take for granted are not permanent and are not guaranteed, and we have to we have to continually be working to improve our system, not just be not just be accepting of sort of gradual sort of erosions or deteriorations in our democracy, without really being as forceful in in holding the people responsible accountable. So hopefully that that will change going forward. Yeah. Sometimes I've thought of the American political system as the boiling frog analogy. Now I don't know how true that actually is. If you put a frog in water and slowly boil it, that the frog won't jump out. Um, But you know, if American politics is that analogy, then the frog has been boiling for quite some time now. And we need to, We need to do something about it before it's too late. Um, The good news is with a new administration, less distraction on a day-to-day basis, more appetite for reform. And we're seeing a surge of signups through our website, volunteers, people who are like, okay, I'm taking a deep breath. Things are going to be a little, a little more normal sometime soon. I, I can work on these systemic issues and get involved. The good news is I think we're, you know, our prospects are brightening for 2021 and beyond. And there's increased hope, in my opinion, for a campaign finance reform amendment specifically. So I want to remind our listeners of why that's necessary, where we're at real quickly. We need to pass a constitutional amendment to overturn Supreme Court decisions like Buckley v. Vallejo and Citizens United that allowed big money into politics Those decisions said that individuals, corporations, unions can spend as much money as they want to influence elections, and there's no way we can rein that in. So we can't wait for the court to fix it because that could take 20, 30, 40 years. Passing an amendment is the most logical solution. And the good news is we have more support than most people know. Last Congress, over 220 House members and 47 senators supported an amendment. And over 20 states have already expressed their support. So we're not as far from the two-thirds 
of Congress and three quarters of states as people think. The biggest obstacle right now to an amendment is along partisan lines. Surprise, surprise. Um, Most Democrats in Congress already support it. Only one Republican is currently signed on, though I can attest personally there are a number who I think deep down support the cause, but maybe have been reluctant to sign on publicly or break from their party. John, what I think is really strange about this is that if you look at public opinion polls, a majority of Republican voters support a campaign finance reform amendment. And similarly, I saw a poll recently, you know, Democrats have pushed that HR1 and the Senate version, the political reform bill. A majority of Republicans and independents support that too. Republican voters, I mean. What's the biggest obstacle to either of those passing right now is that congressional Republicans are like a totally different species than American Republicans or than average Republican voters. And they don't support those things in the same numbers. Why do you think it is that you know, Republicans who are members of Congress are so different than Republican constituents on these issues. I mean, I think, you know, I think this is true of both parties to extent, but I think especially right now um, with some of the cleaves, I would say, for lack of a better word, that the Trump movement created within the Republican Party, I think there's a big divide right now in a lot of things, maybe between sort of traditional, quote unquote, for lack of a better word, Republican politicians and a lot of current Republican voters. But one thing I would like to see is, you know, I mean, I, I think there's, you know, there's two sides of coin again on this. You know, it's unfortunate that I think, you know, what was 150 members of the House signed on to the um, fiction regarding challenging the election. But I suspect that a very large majority of those 150 did not do so because they legitimately believed in the, in the validity of those claims, they did so because they were trying to avoid getting primaried by, by voting against Trump. And they, they were just trying to protect their own skin in the game by, by voting that way. And while I don't support that, when anyone does it, if we are going to have politicians voting in a way to protect themselves, I would be nice if voters would put their feet to the fire a little bit more on these issues, because I think right now, unlike, say, with the campaign challenges, there's a lot of politicians who are getting away with not voting the way their constituents want them to these issues, want, would want them to on these issues, and their feet are not being held to the fire, say, on something like HR1, where if, say, the majority of voters in your district support this, why are you not being afraid of being primary challenged for that? But you are being afraid of primary challenge for not challenging the validity of the election. So it's just like if there's a way to create a little bit more accountability for, you know, politicians in either party who are have constituents who support reform and are not voting that way, I think that would be great. I think it's also based on, a, in my opinion, clearly at this point, and I think the way we if there's a way to start building, you know, awareness that this is the case, I think there was a perception among a lot of Republican office holders that sort of to my above point that the campaign finance reform would likely hurt them. I think we've seen that there's not evidence to support that campaign finance reform is necessarily going to benefit one party over the other. So I think this should be more bipartisan. And I hope that 
that through maybe those two sort of mechanisms, we can start to change that. Absolutely. I think that speaks to one reason that there is more hope in this Congress for momentum on political reform issues and a campaign finance reform amendment specifically, because as you alluded to, you know, historically, I think there was this perception among Republican politicians that big money helps us. So we're going to oppose every campaign finance reform law or bill that we can. And of course, you had some notable exceptions, like John McCain, for example, who was a champion for campaign finance reform for years. But generally speaking, the Republican Party wanted as much money in politics as they could get because it disproportionately helped them. And I think the data bore that out to an extent. But now that simply isn't the case anymore. And if you look at the outside spending in recent election cycles, it's increasingly tilted in favor of Democrats. And then if you look at you know the spending in the Georgia Senate race, again, I think Democrats did quite well there. So not only you know, should congressional Republicans have this reason to support reform because it's what their constituents want, but it's now not going to help or harm their reelection chances. And I think that as awareness of that increases, that will increase the likelihood that we'll see more of a bipartisan movement for campaign finance reform within the next couple of years. That would be my hope, is that, that, this, is that there could be some real movement on that, because some of these Republican politicians are frankly, you know, they're still just in, a, in an old model that I don't think is going to apply anymore in terms of where those donations go and the impact they have. I think it's, you know, based on a, a different political reality than the one we now inhabit. Yeah, and making this making this a bipartisan issue is one of the things I think distinguishes our organization from others is we've been working to build bipartisan support for this in Congress and we have, you know, relationships with democratic offices, we have relationships with republican offices um, and we're in talks right now about how we can move this forward in a bipartisan way because, you know, if a campaign finance reform amendment could pass with just Democrats, it already would have happened. But the way our system is set up with divided government and the filibuster, you know, no significant legislation can pass without some trickle of bipartisan support, at least. And this is one way that some of, some of you listening right now can get involved and help. We are currently working to build up support on the grassroots level in some of these key congressional districts where there might be a member who is on the fence, he or she is interested in supporting campaign finance reform, but hasn't done so yet. And the more that we can show that their constituents agree with them, uh, the more constituents they hear from, who meet with them, anything along those lines, the more likely they are to sign on. Um, So if you're interested in volunteering, you can sign up through our website at citizenstakeaction.org help get endorsements, spread the word on social media about a campaign finance reform amendment, our work. Um, Of course, volunteering, if you don't have time for that, there are other ways to help. You can become a monthly contributor through our website. We are primarily funded by grassroots donors who chip in $10 or $20 a month. Um, So those are a couple of ways to support the movement for a campaign finance reform amendment if you think it's as important as we do. John, before we sign off, any you know any final thoughts on 
the prospects for political reform in 2021 or maybe why you're feeling a lot more optimistic than you were, I don't know, six months or a couple of years ago on these issues? I mean, I think the energy and awareness is out there, and especially on a bipartisan level, you've got, you know, you've had a fair amount of Democrats, as you said, that have been supportive, at least on a basic level of some of these efforts for a while. And now you've got a lot of Republicans who are talking about, you know, things, you know, some of these things, I think, tie in in more direct ways than others, but are talking about, you know, camp- campaign reform, or talking about reining in b- big tech companies, or talking about concerns of, Influence, you know, both parties, you know, are talking about concerns about influence from foreign countries. You know, I think Democrats talk more about Russia. Republicans talk more about China. But regardless, you know, there's all these different things that sort of tie in. And if there's a way to put some of these candidates and politicians who are talking in sort of broad terms about these problems and putting their feet to the fire a little bit more to actually support these meaningful direct efforts to create real reform, I think there there is real opportunity while the energy is out there. And as we sort of transition into hopefully a healthier political reality, I think, than what we've seen over the last four years. I'm hopeful too. And you know, just briefly, I can't I can already tell it's only been what a few weeks since the new members of Congress, new president have been sworn in. But the kind of collective ability of people to get back to work with the election in the, in the rearview mirror is so evident to me. In the congressional offices we talk to, in the volunteers that we have, it's great that we have democratic elections in this country, but the fact that an election like the 2020 election just sucks up sort of so much time, energy, attention, money. It's like, you know, it's like we all have a low level of anxiety about it before the outcome. And even in this case, after the outcome for weeks or months, and now that that's subsided, I just think there's so much more opportunity to to really get back to work and make a difference and move things forward that that we would have liked to have gotten to months or years ago. But frankly, it's just been such a crazy ride that we didn't have the the bandwidth to do it. Yeah. Hopefully um, we can make the transition out of crisis mode and into, and into constructive reform mode. I think that's, I think that's on a lot of levels. I'm hoping that's, that's the transition we can make over the next, you know, six months to a year. So hopefully this can be a, an important part of that. All right, you heard it straight from John Landis's mouth. Time to move from crisis mode into constructive mode. Thank you for listening to the Citizens Take Action podcast. You can leave us positive reviews if you like what you heard on Apple Podcasts, places like that. You can subscribe. And remember, visit citizenstakeaction.org if you're interested in volunteering, donating, supporting the organization, and getting involved. Um, John, thank you for being here. I'm David Edward Burke. Thank you for listening.